welcome to The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or on one of our much-beloved radio syndicate partners or in the Green Majority podcast. I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour, and The Green Majority is a platform for informed environmental dissent. And today, Stefan is interviewing Emma McIntosh about Ontario's Bill C-229, as well as Andre Forsyth and Kate Hambly of the School for Climate Initiative. But first, we will be rounding up some environmental news. The federal liberal government has put forward a bill to gradually bring Canadian law in line with the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, known as UNDRIP. The UN made the declaration in 2007 and was initially opposed by Canada, but we eventually decided to support it in 2016. The 2007 declaration was 25 years in the making and finally affirmed that Indigenous peoples around the world have rights to their language, culture, self-government, and traditional lands. The only form of Indigenous government Canada has historically recognized, however, are the elected councils installed by our own colonial system. The federal legislation faces a long journey before it could become law, and there's tension on the conservative side which has tended to conflate the Declaration's requirement of free, prior, and informed consent with Indigenous veto power over industry. Once the bill is passed, it could take another three years to develop a plan to implement UNDRIP, which is quite a long time for the 633 First Nations in Canada to have to wait for us to change harmful laws. There were six provinces that wanted to delay the bill, but the federal Liberals went ahead and tabled it anyway. The province of British Columbia officially made UNDRIP provincial law in 2019, even though it appeared to contravene some of the province's practices, such as using police to force a pipeline through unceded Wet'suwet'en territory, for instance, or continuing to log without consent in the traditional lands of the Nuhatlet nation. Judith Sayers, writing for the Tai, points out that British Columbia still has not embraced the spirit of UNDRIP, even though it has ostensibly been law for over a year, and that the federal bill has a similar weakness, but also that because the federal bill quote, affirms UNDRIP as a universal international human rights instrument with application to Canadian law, Regardless of any action Canada may take with aligning laws, First Nations could argue UNDRIP in court and get it implemented through the court system. Sayers also notes the bill's conspicuous employment of the word discrimination in place of the word racism. Kenneth Deer, secretary for the Mohawk Nation at Ganawake, is quoted in the CBC as saying, You can't have true self-determination and be limited by the Canadian Constitution but Indigenous people can go a long way until we hit that wall. Anything that the UN passes or Canada passes does not take away our right to self-determination or does not take away our sovereignty. Our sovereignty is inherent and will always be there. In Unistotin, where Wet'suwet'en land and water protectors are still fighting the liquid natural gas pipeline going through their territory in northern BC, an outbreak of COVID-19 has hit one of the pipeline company's workers' camps. Wet'suwet'en women stated in a press release from the Unistoten Resistance, quote, 43 confirmed cases of COVID-19 have been tied to an LNG Canada facility in Kitimat, while Wet'suwet'en have been informed of two confirmed cases of COVID-19, with six individuals in self-isolation at Coastal Gaslink's Camp 9A on Unistoten Yinta. Regarding COVID-19, a recent study out of the Netherlands, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, appears to show that COVID patients with high levels of the industrial chemical PFBA in their bloodstream were over twice as likely to have severe symptoms. Sharon Lerner notes for The Intercept that the chemical was created by the American multinational conglomerate corporation 3M and is used in a wide variety of products, including electronics, clothing, cosmetics, and food packaging. COVID-19 is also exacerbated by polluted air, and the Trump administration recently decided not to put tougher standards on industrial soot pollution, even though the standards could have saved up to 34,000 lives per year. 
The Trump administration has decided to announce a date for auctioning off over 600,000 hectares of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling interests. The auction is now set for January 6th, which circumvents the typical 30-day public comment period that would normally be done. Sabrina Shankman reminds us for Inside Climate News that it was Trump's 2017 tax bill that opened up the protected refuge in the first place in order to help pay for the federal budget. This means that precious wilderness will be destroyed in order to enrich billionaires and continue to fund everlasting American war. Six major American banks and several international banks have said that they will not fund drilling in the refuge, whose wildlife sustains the Gwich'in First Nation in Alaska and the Yukon. In a victory for the Arctic environment, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals recently rejected planned offshore drilling, which had been approved by the Trump administration. The 2020 Arctic report card was recently released, as well, showing that the average surface air temperature in the Arctic between October 2019 and September 2020 was the highest on record since at least 1900. End-of-summer sea ice extent was the second lowest on the 42-year satellite record, outdone only by the summer of 2012. Power shutoffs have come again to California, with bad fire conditions still going on, and a new wildfire having recently begun to rage. In Minnesota, indigenous-led resistance to the Enbridge Line 3 pipeline has continued, with land protectors scaling trees and getting in the way of construction equipment. The resistance argues that the oil sands pipeline infringes on treaty rights, will be built through untouched wetlands, and that out-of-state pipeline workers could help spread COVID-19. Construction of the pipeline, which recently obtained its final permit, is being allowed to start during the pandemic because Minnesota Democratic Governor Tim Waltz designated the project as critical. The Minnesota Chippewa tribe is quoted in EcoWatch as saying, quote, Indian people have lived along the lakes, rivers, and streams of northern Minnesota since time immemorial. The people of the Minnesota Chippewa tribe have flourished in the area for centuries due to the careful conservation of our resources. Clean water and unpolluted land capable of providing sustenance is essential to our survival, and Line 3 poses an existential threat to our well-being. Back in B.C., Extinction Rebellion spokesperson Zane Hack was retroactively arrested by railway police for helping to blockade the rails with 40 other people on November 27th in protest against the publicly owned Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline. Hack and another spokesperson named Kreitzman were also fined for the action. Hack is quoted in Castanet.net as saying, quote, Occupying private and public spaces is an essential step towards truly understanding what a democracy looks like. CN's current authority to make arrests as a private corporation should be challenged through mass action. It is impossible to frighten people who have declared a non-violent rebellion against the government. This comes as the government's own parliamentary budget office has come out with a revaluation of the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, arguing that the pipeline will only be profitable if the federal government does not significantly ramp up its climate action. Canada has pledged to become net zero by 2050, for instance, And if the pipeline stops being used by 2049, it will have lost the government $1.5 billion. The fact that, you know, the pipeline will no longer make money, the TMX pipeline will not make money for the federal government if it stops by 2049, and we know this right now, and Canada has pledged to be net zero by 2050, should lead us to a fair number of questions, especially in the face of the production gap report, which will cover in a future episode, which which highlights the fact that right now we as the world basically have these two completely separate visions. Uh, you know, the, the production gap highlights the fact that we have decided that we are going to create and we're going to pump out and, and explore uh, more and more fossil fuels, while more and more places that are saying that are also saying that they're going to re- get to net zero or or even or even net negative, and and that that dichotomy is fundamentally at odds with each other every time we think about it. And and until the federal government 
explains themselves as to how this difference can somehow be squared away, in which the only real answer, honestly, is to massively, massively subsidize direct air capture technology, which right now comes at about $200 a ton of CO2, significantly more expensive than what our, what our carbon, uh, present carbon is. We're just we're just lying to ourselves. There, like I, you have to admit at some point that you cannot have policy that claims two things that are diametrically opposed, and expect people to take you seriously. But to you, Lauren, I just uh, I really quickly wanted to jump back to the very very beginning of um of the sort of news segment when David was talking about uh, adoption of UNDRIP um, in in a specific bill that I cannot remember the name of at the moment. Um, bad research on my part. I think I just wanted to sort of mention the fact that this is this is good news. This is a good step. This is a positive thing that is happening. Nobody is saying that that adoption of UNDRIP and, and formalizing it in a bill isn't a positive thing. But I did just want to sort of, um, again, to sort of, if people weren't bummed out enough already, really sort of dwell and sit with the fact that um, as is mentioned in this story, uh, a bill affirming UNDRIP was adopted by BC a year ago. And, and as is brought up in one of the speakers that was sort of quoted here, um, BC hasn't really sort of, they say, embraced the spirit of UNDRIP at this point. It's adopted in sort of law, but not in practice. And I do sort of worry that this is going to be... Uh, reflected in in sort of the national context. David specifically mentioned that like it could be up to three years before before the bill is sort of implemented across the court system and um, and sort of really enshrined in law. Um, and even then, once it's adopted and a plan has really been sort of laid out for for it to be integrated into every sort of aspect of of how we do business here in Canada, I'm still worried that um, it might end up being a bit of a hollow gesture, which is obviously not what it was intended to be when UNDRIP was developed like 20 something years ago. Um, so yeah, I think just sort of a moment here to make sure that we congratulate those responsible for UNDRIP being um, adopted in this bill and this bill passing, but also um, really understanding that the fight isn't over and we still need to work really hard to make sure that um, all of the sort of tenants that are specified within UNDRIP, um, including, for instance, one we call a lot, call on a lot here on the show, free prior informed consent, um, are actually taken really seriously and are actually integrated into, into um, laws and lawmaking going forward as well. Just wanted to really, really briefly mention, it's worth noting that uh, when David was talking earlier about a specific chemical that is, that is exacerbating uh, COVID symptoms uh, that's being brought on by a really specific chemical that was developed by 3M. It's worth noting that 3M is the company that produces the vast majority of N95 masks. So to me, this is a perfect example of like disaster capitalism at work and a company reaping the benefits of the terror that they sow. Continuing in BC, the 2020 sockeye salmon return for the Fraser River was the lowest ever or at least since records began in 1893. A measly 288,000 sockeye uh, made the return this year, in comparison with peak years in which close to 20 million would return. Jennifer Trumka, writing for the CBC, quotes Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, as saying, quote, This year's return is just a precursor for the extinction. And that's going to hit not just the economy, not just First Nations, it's going to hit the environment, it's going to hit the animals. The Yellow Knives Dene First Nation, meanwhile, as reported by Charlotte Mort Jacobs for APTN, are still trying to get the government to recognize and do something about the trauma from the giant gold mine which kicked them off their land before poisoning it 70 years ago. Joanne Black, Director of Treaty Rights and Governance for the Yellow Knives Dene, is quoted as saying, they took the gold out of the ground and gave us nothing. Now they put arsenic into the ground and give us nothing. What new monster will they unleash on us now? A first-of-its-kind academic study of mostly white, educated liberals has shown that 96% of the 600 people surveyed who are already worried about the climate crisis are very worried about their children, and many have decided not to have children because they fear the climate crisis would make their lives terrible. 
Executive Director of the World Food Program David Beasley is warning that 2021 could easily be the worst humanitarian crisis year since the start of the UN because of lack of food, people's homes and communities being destroyed, and more and more people being forced to flee and seek refuge in other countries. Finally, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres recently said that while some mindsets and practices appear to be changing, humanity is still waging a suicidal war on nature, and that we face, quote, a moment of truth for people and planet alike. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, perhaps on one of our wonderful radio syndicates across the country, or maybe on the podcast you can found at greenmajority.ca or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. And if you found a place you listen to podcasts that doesn't have it, please let us know so we can make it be there too. We are joined by friend of the show, Emma McIntosh from the National Observer, who is has been covering this actually for quite some time is, you know, has become a little bit of our Doug Ford, I was going to say whisperer, but that seems unfair to you. That I understand him. Okay. Doug Ford understanderer. Maybe, maybe more of like a Doug Ford interpreter. There we go. I like that. Despite all the other news going on, there was actually, you know, big news regarding Bill 229, which was uh, the bill, if you remember a couple shows ago, we talked about that was sort of that conservation groups had uh, had noticed some concerns, but there was a big development this weekend. Emma, can you tell us about that? Sure. So the big development um, was about as dramatic as it gets when it comes to like uh, citizen advisory panels, which is a, a phrase that makes everyone's eyes glaze over. But I promise this is really dramatic and exciting. So there's this thing called the Greenbelt Council. It's a group of experts who the government in Ontario appoints to advise it basically on how best to protect the Greenbelt. I know I don't have to tell y'all what the Greenbelt is, but for those who don't know, it's this big section of protected land that kind of circles around Toronto. Um, and people really love it. That's also important to understand. People love the green belt. So this panel of folks who are advising the government, the chair, this man named David Crombie, who is a former Toronto mayor and a former progressive conservative MP who's like very widely respected. He kind of resigned out of the blue. Not kind of, he, he did resign. He fully resigned out of the blue. And the next morning, six more people from the council followed. So there were only 12 members on that council. So that's more than half of them all at once. And the reason that they resigned is because those uh, changes to conservation authorities that people were already upset about actually got made worse on Friday. The government introduced this this flood, so to speak, of, of new amendments that were pretty much the opposite of what conservation groups wanted and what the Greenbelt Council had advised the government to do. So they had enough and they're gone. Yeah. And and this is a group that was, was this group appointed by this current provincial government or is it more of a multi-generational government advisory panel? It's multi-generational. So a lot of the folks on there who resigned were appointed by the previous Liberal government. Um, There is one Ford appointee who resigned. And of the six people who remain on the council, all but one were appointed by the Progressive Conservatives. So um, there is a bit of a mix, but yeah. Right. But of course, Crombie remains previously a Progressive Conservative MP and so has his own circles within the Progressive Conservative movement himself. Yes. Yeah. He's, um, I think people usually talk about him as one of the the last red Tories. Yeah. Someone who is like a city builder and someone who is like interested in planning and environmental initiatives, but who is like a longstanding progressive conservative. So let's dive a little bit back into the, into the backstory of this, which is the bill itself and then how it got made worse. So can you sort of give us a heads up as to what made the bill itself originally concerning and then, you know, what were the increased damages caused? 
Sure. So as I guess we've come to kind of expect with the Ford government, this was actually buried inside an omnibus bill. Bill 229 was supposed to be the government's budget bill, which, um, if you're unfamiliar, is basically like a piece of legislation that the government uses to implement the things that it wants to do in its budget. So that budget came out in November. And as the budget comes out, the budget bill was introduced. Um, Now, the problem is that conservation authorities don't really have much to do with the budget. So there's some criticism over the way that it was done. The general idea is that conservation authorities are this very important, very like uniquely Ontarian way of approaching waterway management. And they were actually, um, the current system was made after Hurricane Hazel, which like killed a lot of people, um, many of them because they were living in houses that had been built on floodplains. And so after that, they they realized, the, the governments at the time realized they had to think of a better system. And so conservation authorities were uh, strengthened and given the ability to oversee these waterways, make sure development there happens safely, monitor the water quality, that kind of thing. Um, and this bill completely undercuts their ability to do that. Where conservation authorities would have been able to deny development permits before, the bill, at least the original round of amendments that were laid out in Bill 229, would basically allow a minister to overrule those concerns from conservation authorities, um, allow developers to appeal directly to the government and get approval there. Great. And what about the the new changes? Crombie, in his in his resignation letter, basically was like, I quit because when we asked for it to change, they made it worse. Yeah, yeah. Um, critics have definitely <laughs> said these new changes are, are quite egregious. Tim Gray from Environmental Defense used the word aggressive. So one of them would basically allow the government to use this uh, this special type of ministerial order called a, an MZO, or a Ministerial Zoning Order, which sounds kind of dystopian. And that's like an, an appealless order. Like you can't, like once it's done, it's done. You can't reverse it. And so they would allow the government to use that to force conservation authorities to approve a development, even if the agency or the authority had concerns that allowing it might increase flooding or permanently damage an environment that we need to be preserving. Another big one from that rewrite would actually force conservation authorities to make agreements with developers so that developers could pay a fee in exchange for destroying endangered species habitat. The the idea there is that they're supposed to be um, using that money to rebuild the habitat somewhere else. As you can probably imagine, that doesn't really work. Ontario's Auditor General is among many experts who have said you can't really do that. And that kind of agreement is commonly known as pay to slay. Man, Doug Ford really hates endangered species. Like the number of times we have talked about the ways in which endangered species have been put at risk in this just this year alone, I feels like it's like every conversation that we have includes something about endangered species be, like becoming more endangered. It's like, hey, Stefan, what are we talking about this week? Caribou? Uh, salamanders? Yeah, yeah what who we got? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're going for them all. Okay, so big gesture, obviously. As you said, the most anyone can really do in their, in their position, right? Resign and state it's because specifically of this action and, and give them the time to not do it. What has happened since? Well, Monday was a really exciting day. So on the heels of these seven, these seven resignations, the municipal affairs minister, Steve Clark, comes out for an, a you know, 9 a.m. press conference and he says, Hi, everyone. Um, I'm investing $30 million to restore wetlands. Also, while I'm at it, we love the green belt. Also, while I'm at it, I wish all those people who resigned well, but they were failing to expand the green belt like I asked them to. Which, like, if you're feeling, wait, what? They they refused to what? That's what we were all feeling. <laughs> no one <laughs> had brought that up before. Um, so it, it, that was, was, like, one line, literally, like, maybe two sentences in the budget. They said, we want to expand the green belt, maybe. Um and there weren't really specifics, but how they would do that, there was maybe like 
a suggestion that there would be some land around King City, Ontario that could be used, but like nothing concrete. And so Clark like seemed to be claiming that he had gone to the Greenbelt Council and said, make me a plan for expanding the Greenbelt and that they had said no. Um, that's not true. I mean, some of the council members have said since that they're surprised um, that they never got such a request. And you can actually see after the council's last meeting in November, they send these letters to Clark saying like, here's what we talked about and here's what we think. And in that letter, they said, hey, we are so behind the idea of expanding the green belt. How would you like to do that? We think that there should be a public process. Let us know. Um, and David Crombie told me that the government never responded to that letter. So just kind of baffling. I, I think on its face also, it's, it's confusing to claim that people tasked with overseeing the green belt and making it as good and safe and protected as it can be would not be interested in making it good and safe. Um, So that was weird. Um, The uh, Clark has also kind of said that a lot of the people who resigned um, were, their terms were due to expire in March anyway, which is true. Um, You know, a good chunk of them were going to leave the council in March anyways, but um Crombie said to me when when I talked to him on Sunday that yeah sure he could have just chilled out till March and enjoyed the last three months and then enjoyed his time after that but that that I think the members who resigned felt it was so egregious that they could not just sit by and do nothing yeah well it's this sounds very to be honest Trumpian to sort of accuse the people who are fighting for the thing to actually not care about the thing enough you know that kind of like well if you say I don't care about the green belt you're the one who doesn't care about the green belt enough like that sort of <laughs> this projection that is your only response politically so yeah, the other weird argument that um that Clark made that I think is really important to talk about is that he says bill 229 specifically excludes green belt loans so that it won't affect them. Um, And I can see how that might be an argument, but I think that people who know a lot more about biology than me would probably say that like no land exists in isolation, right? Um, There's like, as I'm talking to you, there's a map above my computer of Southern Ontario, conveniently. Um, And like, I can see where the green belt is and you can see waterways run through it and into like from unprotected land through the green belt back through to unprotected land, right? If you are messing with the way that the watershed is handled upstream, everything downstream is going to be degraded. You know, you can't stop that. And if you're chipping away at like the white belt, which is the name for the land that surrounds the green belt, things that are, you know, still worthy of protection and might affect the green belt if they were degraded, I mean, you're you're tipping away at the health of the overall ecosystem. You're basically, to use David Crombie's words, just sucking the value out of it. So it, it's kind of a, you know, in my mind, a naive way of thinking about the environment because you can't really separate the green belt from the lands that surround it, you know? Yeah, it, it's sort of, the, it's that classic kind of concept that you can say that an ecosystem doesn't exist that you can save like a part of it like in old school conservation they were constantly making the mistake of having like one park and then nothing and then another park and then nothing and then another park and they were like well why are all the animals dying it's like because they can't actually get from park to park the ecosystem exists beyond the realm of the of the green belt itself and like you hear doug ford promise over and over again that he's not going to touch the green belt. Um, another one we saw this week was him kind of redirecting fire towards the liberals, saying that they changed the boundaries of um, the green belt like more than a dozen times. Um, sure, but we're not talking about that right now. We're talking about this, and there's other things that um, that this government is doing that could affect the green belt. You know, just one example. Um, the GTA West Highway, which would cut through the Greenbelt. And the, the presumed idea there is that there would be suburbs that would go through also in the Greenbelt to support that highway, right? To make it somewhere people want to drive. So, yeah, it just, it just seems like a, a pattern here when you put it in context with everything yeah. else. 
for sure. So last question, and I feel like I know where this is going, given everything we've learned, but how has the government responded? What's happened? Where are we at now? Well, as we speak, um, the government has passed the legislation a couple of hours ago. So that's that. Um, the entirety of the bill went through, including Schedule 6, which is the part that deals with conservation authorities. And it went through with the amendments that experts seem to understand to be worse. So, I mean, I don't want to use these words lightly, but I think that uh, a lot of folks have used the word disturbing to talk about these changes. And it is, you know, we're in a time where the climate crisis is expected to make flooding in Ontario more intense and more frequent. Conservation authorities play a really vital role in making sure that, A, the waterways, you know, like aren't degraded to the point where flooding gets worse because if we do take away wetlands, we lose some of the environment's natural ability to regulate floods. But they also ensure that if you're building near a waterway, that you're not going to be building in a floodplain. Um, you know, all you have to do is look at what happened to Calgary in 2013. If you if you want to think about what happens when people build houses <laughs> in a floodplain, it gets really bad. It gets really expensive and it gets really dangerous. Um, we learned this lesson before, after Hurricane Hazel. Um, it seems that now we might be forced to learn it again. But given like the fiscal responsibility angle to this, I, it does like... It does make me curious why that angle doesn't seem to matter to the government, but we'll find out. I mean, the, there's already been flooding, you know, after Doug Ford cut conservation authorities, flood management funding. So I'm sure that we'll see the impacts of this playing out in the real world within the next few years. Yeah, I think that's the part that gets me is the fact that all of this is done on a backdrop of having the most hurricanes we ever have in a season, you know, with the fact that you're seeing the ways that insurance companies are sort of pulling away from insuring houses that are on floodplains or in fire proof zones, stuff like that. It is a decision that feels so epically short-sighted and as you know, given everything that's going on it, that's the part that I'm still stuck on. But anyways, uh, any last thoughts? Well, do you want like a real life example that's happening now that, you know, yes. kind of applies? Okay. So there's this development in Pickering, I want to say. Yeah, it's in Pickering. And it's this thing called Durham Live. It's like a casino entertainment complex thing. And recently, the government used one of those ministerial zoning orders that like, you can't appeal this, we're just going to do it order to kickstart another development that would kind of go on to Durham live. It's like a warehouse and logistics thing. And there's also like a film studio in there. One problem that would involve paving over a protected wetland. It's not in the green belt, but it is something that it is literally illegal to develop. So the Toronto and region conservation authority has made it pretty clear. They're not going to willingly permit any development there. So even though the government has issued this order saying, go for it. Uh, the, the TRCA has said, no, <laughs> like, we'll hear you out, but no, like, we're not even going to entertain this. Using these new rules, the Ford government can compel the conservation authority to say yes. They can have all the concerns that they currently have. They can be worried that it will cause increased flooding. They can be worried that it will destroy a wetland that we cannot get back in an area where three quarters of our wetlands have already been lost. And that won't matter. Obviously, that hasn't happened yet. This legislation has only been passed for like four hours. But I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that happen and for that to happen in more cases. We're here with an interview with Andre Forsyth, the founder of Canadian Climate Challenge, and Kate Hambly, the director of youth operations for the School for Climate Initiative. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph, and for having us. And nice to see or hear you, I should say, actually. <laughs> Thank you for having us as well. So let's start with the very the basics. The project you're, you two are working on and your larger team is working on is, is quite extensive. But let's start from the ground here. Who are you and what is the work that you're doing? Awesome. So, I mean, as as Stefan mentioned, my name is Andre Forsyth, 
and I'm the founder of Canadian Climate Challenge, um, which is primarily a climate event calendar that we launched last year to help aggregate climate events into one accessible location. Uh, and then we also went out and, and covered as many of those events as possible and created shareable content, something that wasn't being done that much prior to uh, the beginning of 2019. And then we saw a huge explosion of it for, for 2019. And, and, and then I'm also the project lead for uh, the School for Climate. Great. And, and so Kate, perhaps you can let us know about what that project is. Yeah, of course. So just like a brief intro, my name is Kate, and I've been a volunteer with Andre and Canadian Climate Challenge for the past two years, and now I'm a volunteer for the School of Climate. And so the School of Climate is an immersive art exhibition hosted in a decommissioned Catholic school, depicting what a sustainable Toronto looks like and what role each uh, community plays in bringing a more sustainable, equitable, and uh, resilient Toronto to life. Great. And so, Andre, you've been working on this project for for years now. You know, like this was, and when you first described the goal of this project, to me, it was so big that I was, I was sort of blown away at the, at the concept of taking over a school to bring a climate future to life. And yet, over the last few years, you've, you've picked away at it. You know, you now actually have a school, is my understanding, that is sort of committed. You have these buildings and you're getting up to the next step. But Again, if we can sort of keep building that base out, why did you choose this project? Sort of what's your theory of change that leads to, you know, taking over a school to imagine a better future? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question. And yes, it has definitely been a labor of love. Uh, we were supposed to actually launch the expedition uh, this year. However, COVID had other plans. Uh, so it's now been moved to 2021. And the the whole purpose of creating such a bold initiative is because that's what we need. We, we need bold initiatives right now. I, we've gone to that point where everyone understands that changing a light bulb here or there is not, it's not going to be what, what gets us to where we need to go. So we decided, okay, well, we need bold action if we're going to get there. So why not launch a, a bold initiative? And um, within the, the theme of accessibility is kind of where we started with, with uh, Canadian Climate Challenge, um, making climate events more accessible. Uh, prior to us launching our calendar, you, you really had to be on about 100 different newsletters, really following the climate community um, on top of your email in order to find out where everything is. And if we want to bring everyone into the space and help show them how they can get involved, we, we can't expect them to, to be following that intently to, to all of these different sources. So we kind of then took that idea and said, okay, great, this, is, this was a great start by providing a platform, uh, a calendar that everyone can see and keep track of what's going on and, and how they can plug in. But the next thing that we, we felt like was missing was demonstrating how. So we, we feel like there, there has been a lot of work talking about what needs to be done and where we need to go, which excellent, excellent work that has been done. And I think what the challenge now is demonstrating and communicating effectively how we, we do that work and how, what that looks like varies per community. If you work in the automotive industry, the means for which you can help uh, drive climate solutions and push uh, to a more sustainable future could look very differently than if you're a healthcare worker or if, if you are in a, an indigenous community. And so if we don't have clear definitions or a, a, a clear way to uh, communicate to people how they can get involved, we can expect them to get to get involved. And, it, and it's not, we can see our media is not doing the job of that. So what what can we do in order to make that happen? And we felt like creating a, an immersive art experience um, was the best way to give a visceral connection, one, so that people can see what that future looks like and then see what initiatives um, are, are required in order to get there. And I think that if, if we're going to expect people to get involved, we've, we've got to make it clear for them how to do so. So dive a little deeper into that one part of it, because the centering of art is, is a fascinating and very different approach than most other uh, attempts. The, the closest I could imagine what might be the Anthropocene exhibit that was came out of mm -hmm. uh, the AGO a few years ago. But obviously, this is still, in my mind, actually a bigger scope because of the build required. And so I'm curious, what was it about art that you thought was so important to embed in this project? So uh, thank you, like, for sure. Great question. And Absolutely, centering art is at the center of the School for Climate. 
number one, we need to be able to see ourselves in the solutions uh, that we're that we're pushing for. So our already does that in a way that a, a media article or a news coverage um, can't do. I think film also can do that, but I think the visual representation is a creates a, a lot stronger connection um, with whoever's engaging with that and helps spur that imagination and, and helps contextualize um, what is possible. Um, also, we've seen the role of art throughout history be a center for mobilizing social change. There's, we all know when we look back throughout history at the biggest moments of social change that have ever happened, they all have art at the center of it. And, and that's been a big part in galvanizing people and bringing them together across diverse backgrounds. Different art speaks to different people in different ways. So that's why we've been waiting a while for when is art going to find its way into the climate space in a way that's relevant to today. The, the, how art was years ago is very different today. And so that's why with the School for Climate, we've taken it up a level. So it's not just, you're not going into a gallery to see that each room is designed as its own immersive experience where, where you're using digital mapping to create a responsive environment. When, uh, when a person's walking through there, you're using augmented reality to bring the art to life. So we're taking the learnings that we've had before, bringing it into a, a, a modern, and combining it with technology to bring it into a modern context. And hopefully it can then have the same kind of uh, ability to mobilize our populations as we've seen it have in the past. Awesome. So I'm going to pivot over to you, Kate, because I'm curious, what interested you in the project and, and why did you, why'd you want to get involved? So what interested me in this project was kind of two years ago, I wasn't very familiar with the climate space in Toronto. And since joining Canadian Climate Challenge, I realized that there needs to be better visibility regarding climate advocacy in Toronto and especially for those outside of our climate community. So joining the School for Climate, I wanted to push myself to try and be a part of something that is creative and inspirational. Unfortunately, my creative capacity is limited with just drawing stick figures, but I really enjoy working behind the scenes and coordinating ideas and making them a reality. And I think that the School for Climate can easily kind of execute that. And if I can throw something in there, I think you made a great point there, Kate. So much climate work is behind the scenes. And Stefan, I know you know this. We see every day because we exist in this community um, how committed people are. But that where is that represented? Nobody, if, if, for people who aren't working in our space, it's very easy to think that this isn't, this, this isn't really happening in Toronto. This is a theoretical discussion about something that we may be doing when in reality, commitments that will be happening in early 2021 uh, to have to support clean hydrogen starting to supplant fossil fuel is a huge thing that's going on. That's massive. That, and the amount of people who have no insight to that is, is kind of a, a travesty. So I love what you said there, Kay, about having in that first year of us going to every climate event that's ever happened, increasing visibility to the wider population, I think, is, is something that I think Green Majority is trying to do, and I think that's something that we're also trying to do. Thank you for that. And so if I can sort of make the connection now to this project, to this current moment, because, you know, obviously when you began this project, you did not know COVID was going to occur. And and yet, and and if you did, why didn't you tell us? Um, (laughs) But I actually think what's interesting is that this, there's a possibility, and I've, you know, we've spoken this before, uh, Andre, that this project is actually now coming to fruition at perhaps the most perfect time. You know, we are seeing a moment right now with environmental justice and especially the just recovery gaining steam that this is almost sort of an exploration of that, right? Like in some ways to me, uh, and you correct me if wrong, this is creating the vision of what a successful just recovery could ultimately exist as and making it, trying to make it as accessible as possible for these people. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of expand on how you see this project connecting both to environmental justice, but also to sort of this larger move. So that is an excellent, excellent. First of all, I love that you brought up uh, the just recovery because the just recovery is amazing. I did not see COVID happening. I would have forewarned you if I, if I did. But uh, I will say the just recovery and build back better 
led by uh, Black Panther led by Corporate Knights and uh, just the Just Recovery team with Ken and Lee Now and, and all of those folks were some of the most important things that have come out of 2020 as far as I'm concerned, in so much as they have done the incredible work of laying out the roadmap for where we need to go and how we need to do this in a Canadian context. So I, I think some of that existed outside of Canada beforehand, but to then contextualize that to our industries, to our unique communities in Canada, um, to our specific Canadian challenge, challenges, and, and identify not just um, what we need to do from a technical perspective, but how we need to approach this from a theory of change and, and inclusivity in a way that it, it represents um, communities that may not have previously identified um, themselves as, uh, or, or their positive futures being attached to a climate recovery has been undoubtedly one of the most important things to come out of, of 2020. And, and I, I think that's, as you said, is part of what makes this time perfect, for lack of a better word, for this to be coming uh, to life, and which is why we've actually launched our, our Canadian Climate Art Campaign as a lead-in to uh, the School for Climate, because in 2019, we were, we were lucky enough to have uh, the Fridays for Future crew create a large visible presence for a community. Obviously, they haven't been able to do that this year in the way that, that they could last year. And so we were looking for a way for, we, we want art to wait again another year to get in. So what is another way that we could provide different communities in Canada a way to have their voice heard in a socially distanced and safe way, but still be bold enough to have a, an impact and for people who aren't within the space to receive those messages and have the accessibility to get involved uh, the, the way that they could with um, the climate marches last year. So let, let's talk about getting involved then, because obviously, you know, this is a, again, as mentioned, a project quite massive in scope. And so I'm a person at home, I'm hearing about this project, I want to get involved in some way. How can people get involved? How can they help you? And, and when, honestly, should they expect to see, you know, the next stage of this? So, as I just mentioned, we've, we've launched our uh, Canadian Climate Art Campaign, which we're very excited about. And I would say, that is probably the easiest way to to get in, involved for people from a variety of different backgrounds. And we've structured it that way in order for that to be the case. And so essentially what 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 is a Canadian climate art campaign? Oh, good question. Why don't I answer? So this this holiday season, we asked ourselves, what do we want out of 2020? Like, what do I want for Christmas this year? Or what do I want for the holidays this year? And um, the answer was bold climate action. Like the time with, coming out of 2020, we've already heard that this is now, this recovery period is now when we're going to have to enact all of these climate actions, right? Although the government was dithering on dates beforehand, with the amount of spending that is going to have to be uh, allocated to, for us to recover, this is the time that we're going to need to implement climate action. And so we said, okay, great. We need a way for the public to be able to raise their voice and to be heard and, and support that climate action. So we've decided to launch this campaign and it will run for the next few months before the School for Climate launches. But our first focus is for December. And so we're aiming for 12 days of climate mur murals. So instead of the, of the 12 days of Christmas, we're doing the 12 days of climate murals with each day having a different themed climate mural to represent the various different communities that climate solutions need to be enacted on behalf of. So whether that's about environmental justice, whether that is about environmental education, the entire array of, of the different nuanced areas that need to be represented in, in these solutions, we want to create uh, an opportunity for, for the home to get involved in. So the way, and the way that they can do that is we've launched our campaign. You can check us out on Instagram. It's the School for Climate or, um, or come to our website, schoolforclimate.com. And the call out is to artists, it's to businesses, it's to climate groups. And what we're trying to do is create these murals. We, first of all, we need artists to help create those murals. Number two, we need spaces to put the murals. So if you're a business that is in support of climate messaging, if you're in support of creating the future that we're all trying to get to, then if you have a space that we can put a mural, reach out to us. We would love to host it there. And then if you're a climate group or and you have strong messaging, you want to see represented that you feel your community needs to hear. You there is a climate solution that you you want 
to represent your community. We want you to share that with us as we collectively uh, create this art. And that's, and that's how we think we have to design most things as we're going forward. You have to find a way to, for people who don't necessarily naturally have a background in climate. So artists, for example, a lot of the artists we've started working with do not have that much information about the climate solutions that we need. But if we then bring them together and, and put them together with the climate groups who have that knowledge, and then you've got businesses who are dying to get involved but need a way to do so, all of a sudden you put the three of those together and you have a great solution that then leads to bold representative climate action. Awesome. Okay. Uh, so final question to both of you. You have this audience of, of people, we always say from Buffalo to Barry who are listening to this, and you get like, you know, a paragraph approximately to pitch them on why they should support or why should they get involved in this program. What do you say? So what I would say is that when we think of Toronto and what makes Toronto iconic, we think of the CN Tower. And it's, I think it's my generation's time to have our iconic impact on Toronto. And throughout this whole pandemic, I think it's safe to say that we've explored, all of us have explored Toronto much more than we would have ever thought. And at any time that we always see people stopping and taking selfies with the, the iconic Toronto sign or in Graffiti Alley. And so that idea of being able to walk around Toronto and see climate art would mean a lot for us because we want our goal ultimately is to promote artists, their work and climate visibility, and then to leave our impact on Toronto. That is amazingly well, well said, Kate. And, and so I'm, I'm, that's exactly what we're, we're going for. And uh, I, I think for me, for my final message would be that we have seen the art take this pivotal role in, in, in mobilizing us all before. What I've left out earlier is that our art is very much centered on repurposing World War II propaganda and giving it a climate, uh, a climate message and reshaping it so that it represents the climate solutions that we're, we're pushing towards. We are also so excited to announce that Seth Klein, author of A Good War, definitely the most important Canadian book of 2020, has come on as a partner and we can't wait to create a mural with him. And as of this time of this recording, we have our first four mural locations confirmed. We have our first five artists confirmed and a growing list of partners. And we launched our site at schoolforclimate.com. So check it out. It has a ton of ways for you to get involved. Vote for a mural in your neighborhood. Help sponsor a mural to show your support and be recognized as a contributor, uh, which is super dope. So, um, so reminder, first mural will be created on December 14th, and we will be live streaming to our Instagram at the School for Climate. So come follow us. Uh, we spent the year fighting COVID together. So come join us as we begin to build back better together. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.